Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Today, we're celebrating the huge win out of Georgia in the Senate runoff, thanks to the work of organizers, a great candidate in Reverend Warnock, and the perseverance of Georgia voters. Democrats will go into 2023 with a larger Senate majority than we've had in the last two years, 51 to 49. Woohoo! And we still have a bit of time left in Congress's hopefully not-so-lame-duck session. So joining us to talk about our legislative opportunities and how we make the most of them is co-founder and co-director of Indivisible, that's right, Leah Greenberg. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Congratulations, Jennifer. We we got to fifty one. It's huge. We yeah. we uh, the red wave. What red wave? We actually added to our Senate majority. Incredible. Yes, it was an incredible victory. Wonderful to see that come through. Although we knew things were looking pretty good on the ground, nothing beats just seeing that final check mark go up and be able to close the chapter on 2022. Finally. Yeah. And uh, again, like I'm tired. Uh, I know you're tired. We're all tired, but Georgia organizers, man, and Georgia voters who voted for uh, Senator Warnock five times, I believe now, and, and would not be deterred. I don't know if you heard, I'm sure you did, Warnock's speech last night. Voter suppression is alive and well in Georgia, and don't let the results of this election uh, fool you into thinking it's not. But what is so inspiring is these Georgia voters who would not be deterred, would not be disenfranchised, waited in long lines, and and knew the power of their vote, and uh, and and had made their voices heard. And and uh, wow, I'm just uh, I'm thrilled, and uh, we've talked about it on this show. Reverend Warnock is a spectacular senator, and we get six years of him in the Senate. That's spectacular news. Yes, absolutely. And amazing that we were able to block Trump's hand-picked candidate (laughs) that was – what somebody said, it was a – plane crash on the way to a train wreck on the way to a trash fire <laughs> just kept getting worse and worse um but it's it's a it's sobering right also to see the margin be so close when uh walker was such a terrible candidate so it is there are lessons to take forward though we celebrate the victory uh it also is sobering that we are dealing with such a polarized electorate in that way but it was also gratifying to see warnock actually win a much higher uh, percentage of the of the vote than we saw in past cycles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was a great um, someone posted on Twitter. It's uh, lucky for Herschel Walker that he's got some time off now since it's a full moon tonight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know the jokes will never end. Yeah. Anyway, go Georgia! Very exciting. Go Georgia, mm-hmm. Jennifer. <laughs> way, way to win has some. Uh, insights from the election that I think are really compelling. And I would love to to hear what you all found in the work that you did. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for asking. So <laughs> you got it. <laughs> uh, in, in the 
as the early vote was going toward the end of the election and into election day, we commissioned a poll. It's a not a traditional exit poll because it covered the entire, a lot of the time that people were early voting. And then it also covered some of the time after the election. So it's a post-election poll that gives us an overview. It covers eight battleground states that we all were watching during the election. And it was a 3,600 sample in those eight states. So it gives us a picture, pretty good picture of what voters in the battlegrounds were thinking and what drove them. So a little different than a, a national poll, which would cover, of course, a sample of the whole country and really focuses on those states. So we can look at some of the state by state results. But I think some of the most interesting things that we saw were at that more national level. And and really what the biggest takeaway is that you could see very clearly how the two issues of Dobbs and democracy really drove people's choices in this election. And that was true for Democrats and a lot of the, the groups of Democrats, which we'll talk about, but also true for independents, which was really important and made the difference in a lot of the states. So despite all the pundits who were essentially saying that there were too many headwinds that Democrats could overcome, that were saying uh, the economy and inflation was going to, you know, completely drive people's choices. Right. What we found was really interesting. People care about the economy and inflation. It still remains their top issue. But when they actually sat with how they wanted to show up in this election, the two issues of Dobbs and democracy overtook their concerns about inflation and economy. And the pundits just really didn't see that coming. A couple of points I want to share about some of the constituencies that no matter what people try to say, the youth vote was a really big deal. Oh, yeah. We won such a big percentage of the youth vote, even though people may say turnout wasn't as high as 2018 or whatnot, which is probably true. The per the percentage of young voters choosing Democrats was so much higher than any other group. It really made a difference. Mm. And the same thing we saw with new voters, actually, who came into the electorate, also uh, voting for Democrats by more than 20 points. Wow. And then we also saw, yes. <laughs> and then we also saw um, the importance of our diverse coalition, that it's not median voters who win elections, it's diverse coalitions who win elections. And so we can see that in the data where Democrats lost men overall to Republicans by seven points and white people overall by 13 points, about one women by three points and uh, Latinos, 32 points, black people by 57 points, AAPI by 15 points. I want to back up. You said Democrats won Latinos by 32 points. Yes. I think that's a very important, uh, you know, measure to, to talk about too, because there has been so much in the news about Republicans winning over Latinos and how Democrats have been struggling with the Latino vote. But that's yeah. 32 points. It's not even close. Yes, absolutely. And some of the erosion that we saw happen with Trump in 2020, we saw being recovered in 2022. The, the margins for Latino voters choosing Democrats are – the same kind of levels that we saw in previous uh, previous cycles. So that was actually great. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing is that what we really see is how we have an anti-MAGA coalition. 
that's forming. And that coalition is broad. You can think of it as going from AOC to Liz Cheney, right? People who mm. follow both of those can <laughs> both of those political figures, they're all in our coalition right now and they're saying no to a this kind of democracy attacking MAGA faction that is way too extreme for most Americans. And it's interesting because we also saw Democrats win in environments that were very Republican heavy. So when we looked at in this poll, we won't know all the data until we see the voter file. But in this poll, in a lot of the states, the overall electorate was quite Republican heavy with people identifying as Republicans saying, you know, they, they actually were the were a bigger share of the electorate who showed up. But Democrats still won in those states. And that just tells you one of the things I think it tells you is just how toxic this MAGA Republican brand has become yeah. and how, what of a what a problem it actually is for the Republicans and what an opportunity it is for Democrats to continue to build a pro freedom pro-democracy coalition. Well, that's, um, I mean, thank goodness. Thank goodness that the MAGA Republican uh, doctrines are not pervasively popular in our country because um, that would lead us down some very dark times that we have been going down anyway. And, yeah. um, and I'm so grateful that we were able to push back on that. Any yeah. any other uh, salient points or, you know, from, from that, study that that uh, you think it's important for our listeners to know? Yeah. One of the other really interesting things, which is a little bit of a look forward to 2024, is, you know, when we think about the Biden presidency and the Democratic Congress that governed in the first two years of the presidency, 2020 to 2022, it was one of the most successful governing presidencies we've seen in modern time in terms right. of how much they accomplished. But in our poll of these battleground state voters, it was a shocking 78% of voters, including young people, including black people, including independents, said that they could not name or were not aware of anything that the Biden administration and Democrats had done to improve their lives. Oh. So- that, really that, that hurts. That hurts, yeah. especially with how much I've been trying to talk about it and get that message out there. Ouch. Okay. <laughs> it's it's like a warning sign because when people don't understand the benefits that they're getting because Democrats are governing, they're more susceptible to the Republican messaging. And so we really wanted to call that out going forward. We just have more work to do to, you know, not just talk in terms of policies and st to statistics and things like that. We have to think about how we're connecting in a, mo in a more emotional way, I think, to people's lives, mm -hmm. understanding that there's still a lot more work to do, but we really have to get better at, at making the connection between democratic governance and how people are doing in their lives and being able to tell those stories in a way that is going to actually land and, um, and hopefully change that dynamic. It really is the opportunity in 2023 because that's when a lot of these other policies that Biden and the Democrats passed are going to start to actually roll out yeah. in a bigger way. So it's just an important thing to know and remember that we can't just expect people to know because these policies are being rolled out. We have to take a concerted effort, you know, to really message to them and to do that in an effective way. 
Okay, I hear you. We'll keep doing that. Um, <laughs> um, we, you know, yeah. we always have a lot of work to do. But, but you know, this, like you said, they're going to start feeling. Uh, they're going to see these projects kicking in in twenty twenty three, and um, we talk about it all the time. You can't, um, you can't fact someone out of their feelings. People just feel a certain way, so we have to make emotional arguments. Uh, you know, we have to um, talk in a way that resonates to their feelings and their emotions um, for yeah. for it to work. Because um, exactly, you know, we've been trying to just throw stats and facts at, at people, and it's just not not persuasive. Yeah, Sad, sadly, you know, I mean. Maybe it should yeah. be, but it's not the world we live in. It's not not how humans operate, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it does relate to, you know, we also saw, which we've seen before, a deficit when it comes to economic issues. Why people who prioritize economic issues, which is still a majority of voters, will ch- say that they chose Republicans. But it's, again, it's a 32-point deficit, right, for people who prioritize economy, saying they voted for Republicans. And it's just not tenable for us to lose on that issue. And we shouldn't have to because we're actually – the things that Biden and the Democrats have been doing have actually been rooted in a a kind of an economics that we're trying to make people's lives better, you know, give people more to work with, to lower costs, to make things easier. It's it's flummoxing. To say the least, because we're so much better. Democrats are so much better at the economy than Republicans are. Like administration after administration, time and time again, uh, Republicans uh, send us into you know recession or near recession, and uh, Democrats have to come in and bail it out and fix it, and uh, we just go back and forth. Yet, as you said, voters still you know think of Republicans as there's there's this notion, uh, especially amongst Republicans, that they may be fiscally conservative but socially liberal and it's Mm -hmm. such a terrible misnomer because Mm -hmm. number one those what they think of as fiscally conservative policies are very harmful to our uh, economy and don't work and they've been proven time and time again not to work but also as as our uh, speaker emeritus uh, says a budget is a statement of your values and uh, and you know where you choose to allocate funds, where you choose to invest. Um, that's a statement of your values, and Republicans consistently invest in making the top richer and uh, and giving them the breaks, and not building the middle class and uh, and lifting people out of poverty. So, anyway, yes, I got to talk about that in a way that appeals to people's feelings, because even the way I said that doesn't. Probably doesn't resonate to people who – we'll work on it. We'll work on our persuasion. We'll work on it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, really cool study. And um, yeah. uh, it's on you, – you've got some Twitter threads on it and stuff too. So Yes. We have a Twitter thread on at Way to Win AF. It's pinned. So if you go on Twitter to our page, you can see it right at the top. And we would love people to share it. It's important to continue to win – the why, uh, as we, you know, are in this post-election period, that it's a reminder, right, that we don't we don't listen to pundits and predictors. We actually listen to the people who are doing the work and actually made this happen and caused us to have these amazing historic wins. Yeah. What a great segue to this week's Hero of the Week. So 
I got to choose this week's Hero of the Week, and um, it's really uh, mostly an excuse for me to be able to play some sound that I, I got at a phone <laughs> bank. But I jumped into a Georgia phone bank for Reverend Warnock uh, that had a special guest, Stevie Wonder, was on this phone bank performing and singing and getting everyone uh, just fired mm-hmm. up and ready to make phone calls. And oh my gosh, it was so special. There were there were like 120 people. That's it. On this wow. phone. And, and it was like a private little concert straight from wow. his home studio. And so I, I want to uh, play a little bit of Stevie Wonder, my hero of the week for you right now. Higher ground, so, find got to got to find that higher <laughs> ground. He went on to like riff about Warnock, lead us to the higher ground, and make calls, <laughs> oh, and, and it was just it was so so good. I'll probably I should post that whole video on. Um, uh, it was just you know me taking the video, but I should post that on Twitter too. I think I'll do that. But um, you know, for stepping up, using his platform, sharing. Uh, you know, he's one of my favorite musicians of all time. Um, and just genius, but to use his platform to help help in that way. He is our hero of the week, Stevie Wonder. It just sounds like an amazing moment. So I'm glad you got to experience that. It was so profound. And and the other thing is um, those calls were so great. I mean, you talked about when you're on the ground, you're feeling pretty good there. When you're making calls, I was feeling pretty good. I cannot yeah. I cannot remember ever being on a phone bank where I consistently reached people who time and time again had said they already voted. Yeah. Like that was the strategy. Yeah. It it was incredible. I mean, I I reached a lot of voters. They all like they, it was great. They didn't hang up on me. They wanted to talk, but they were Warnock supporters and they had already voted. And uh and I I felt really really good after that phone <laughs> bank. I felt really confident, but I didn't stop. That's but cool. I felt confident, but I didn't stop. Um, Speaking of not stopping, let's talk about this week's to-do list. So we are going to be hearing from Leah Greenberg, who we did a great interview with, and she pointed us to indivisible.org, where there's lots of opportunities to engage right now in uh, talking to Republican senators and congresspeople around some of the push the last minute push on policies, especially Republican centers where we're trying to get 60 votes for those listeners who may have some of those relationships. The other piece is, I believe, talking and reaching out to Democrats around some of the last ditch efforts to deal with the debt ceiling issue. So Mm -hmm. I think there's just immediate uh, activity that people can be doing to help finish out this not so lame, lame duck session. 
<laughs> love it. So um, indivisible.org, you all know the site. You love the site. Um, there's call scripts and stuff for you to do. So let's do it. A little, little final push before we take a break for the holidays. Yes, thank you. What's your uh, reason for hope? Well, I know we've talked about Georgia voters a lot, but I just have to bring it up again. My reason for hope, honestly, is just thinking about a lot of these individuals, I didn't realize how much they actually had to go through to vote. And there were some real stories that came out this week online that I saw just really detailing actually how many steps there were and how, of course, we've seen the lines and how many hours, but it just, as someone, of course, in California, who I can, I can take for granted being able to vote really quickly and my absentee ballot that comes in the mail, it's just a real reminder of the power of individual voters who, who took that on and who took the time and the effort Somebody said it was easier to finish their PhD paperwork than it was to vote in Georgia. And so I think it's just a good reminder for us. And it gives me hope that despite all the things that people face in their lives, that the people believed enough in democracy and, and enough people um, took that sacrifice of, you know, the money to park and the time to wait in line and being away from work. So I just want to honor that. And that that's my reason for hope. Although my real reason for hope is that we will actually build enough power in Georgia to fix some of those structural barriers so that mm. people don't have to go through that again. Absolutely. I love that. That's my reason for hope, too. I'm just going to piggyback on yours and uh, <laughs> yeah. and add to it with a big, large ditto. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, thank you, Georgia voters. You really, um, you really showed up for for the whole country, for all of us. All right. Well, let's. Uh, as we talked about earlier, we still do have some work to do in this legislative session. So let's get right to our interview with our friend Leah Greenberg. Leah Greenberg is a co-founder and co-executive director of the Indivisible Project. Along with her co-founder and spouse, Ezra Levin, Leah has been featured as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. She's also the co-author of We Are Indivisible, A Blueprint for Democracy After Trump, which I know the working title was How We Win. Uh, <laughs> Leah, great to see you and welcome back to the How We Win podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here uh, with our kindred spirits who are who want to win. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we did. So first off, congratulations and thank you. Indivisible groups all over the country worked so hard to make sure Reverend Warnock was reelected to the Senate. And thanks to all of our volunteers and activists, we have added to our Senate majority, added to it. We have 51 now. How are you feeling? Uh, I am feeling energized and uh, thrilled and and just incredibly proud of the movement. Um, you know, this was a this was a period when a lot of people gave everything they had to get across the finish line in November and then took a deep breath and plunged right into Georgia. And uh, you know, that is the spirit that sums up our movement. I know we joined, we had a post election call a few days after the election was over and. You know, we're overwhelmed by questions about what's next, what do we do next, how do we take action on Georgia, how do we take action on this final session in Congress, et cetera. Um, and 
Uh, it's just great to see all of that energy and enthusiasm turning into the victory that we knew it could. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about that because I know we were celebrating the winds of November, um, but thinking about what this means going into the next year, what do you see as some of the new opportunities that we'll have in the Senate with this majority based on your experience having worked so hard in the last session um, when Biden was elected in 2020 with the 50-50 split? Yeah. Well, it opens up a couple of opportunities in the Senate immediately. Uh, first, it means a speedier and smoother judicial confirmation and nominations confirmation process, right? 51 votes means you can lose a mansion or a cinema when you need to. <laughs> um, second, it changes the power sharing agreement in the Senate, which means that Democrats obtain new investigatory uh, authorities that allow them to be more aggressive in their oversight than they have been under the current 50-50 power sharing agreement, which had to be had to be negotiated with Mitch McConnell. Uh, so those are both super exciting. And of course, very obviously, it's a lot better to be defending a 51 seat majority with a tough map in 2024 than it is to be defending a 50-50 majority with a tough map. We have got For a sure. lot of very, very hard seats that are up and only a couple of pickup opportunities. So we are really, really lucky that we'll be heading in from a position of greater strength. Now, in terms of uh, the other body that we are facing, the House, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've also got a bunch of these new members, uh, more than uh, almost 20 in Biden won districts, uh, another 10 or so who should, for various reasons, feel vulnerable, many mm -hmm. of whom won their races by successfully doing a lot of work to disassociate themselves from the MAGA brand, from the National Republican Party brand, mm -hmm. who are collectively making a majority where uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be calling the shots. Mm -hmm. And so there's just going to be uh, a lot of chaos associated with that, a lot of potential harm, but also a major political opportunity to tie Anybody who is claiming, anybody who's got an R next to their name and who's enabling this chaos while claiming to not actually be part of it, tie those folks to the worst of the Republican Party again and again for the next two years so that we're telling people a very clear story of one party that gets things done and one party that is about chaos, cruelty, and control. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, as we look in... Um Right now, the current, hopefully not so lame duck session, um, what are the priorities we should be pushing to get done, you know, I mean, by the end of next week? Yeah, so we're thinking about it in terms of two buckets. Um, and one is just getting as much good stuff as we can across the finish line during this time. And the other is getting rid of or taking hostages off the table so that Republicans can't use them in the coming uh, coming congressional session. Okay. So in terms of getting good stuff passed, that's stuff like the Marriage Equality Act, uh, which we are excited, almost almost done. <laughs> right. That's also uh, stuff like the Electoral Count Act, right, which secures some really important vulnerabilities around how we go about certifying presidential elections. I think mm -hmm. the piece that's also that I want to talk a little bit more about is the preventing hostage taking. So yeah, yeah. please explain already, that. Yeah. So. <laughs> We know what is coming because Republicans are saying it out loud uh, and across their caucus. They intend next year to use the need to raise the debt ceiling in order to force Democrats to sign off on significant cuts to Social Security and Medicare. They're they're saying it out loud. Rick Scott is saying it. 
uh, House Republicans are saying it, it's quite possible it will be one of the conditions that uh, Kevin McCarthy has to accede to in order to ultimately get uh, his his gavel. Um, we know that this is their plan, and it's really, really important that we have this narrow, narrow window where we actually can prevent them from having the legislature or the procedural opportunity to act on it. So mm -hmm. there are a couple of different ways that we could be looking at extending the debt limit during this time, um, either just extension, an extension um, through a reconciliation bill. Uh, there are various ways that we could go about this, but we really need to be making clear to everybody who is on our side that this is our chance to prevent ourselves from getting into an enormous mess next year. And what do you, what is the biggest barrier or like what, and what is the leverage point that you think is there for activists to hammer on around it? Yeah. So the debt ceiling has always been a really, really weird issue in that there is a deep belief in Washington, D.C. that this is something really toxic, that raising the debt ceiling every time you raise it uh, is going to trigger the next round of attack ads that say Senator X voted to add X billion, X trillion to the debt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's thus been like a real hesitation to kind of take the on long-term action that is necessary on it or to act without some kind of bipartisan fig leaf. Uh, this is really, really weird, totally honestly. Um, it's very hard to look at any, find any like objective evidence that suggests that the debt ceiling has ever functioned well as a political attack line for anyone. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was just wondering, like, do voters even care? I mean, they don't know where no. the debt ceiling is. It's just a, an arbitrary number, really, to most well, people. And and like, mm -hmm. you know, not this is my my like regular human hat, most humans don't understand the difference between very diff large numbers, right? So you can say, you know, You're looking straight at me when you say that, and I know, what, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah, it's fair to call me out. <laughs> right, exactly. You personally don't understand. No, uh, no, but like, you know, if you say somebody wants to spend $200 million in a really outraged voice and you spend, somebody wants to spend $5 trillion in an outraged voice, most people hear a big number. Um, and right. you're supposed to be mad about it. Anyway, so it's always been a bizarre belief that this is some kind of political third rail. Okay. I think, so there's one piece of this that is the hesitance to act on it in a uh, you know, unilateral uh, manner, which would reconciliation would involve 50 Democratic votes. The uh -huh. other piece, frankly, is a belief by some folks that there is actually a political advantage in having that showdown over Social Security and Medicare next year rather than taking this off the table now. And We've seen how that played out. We lived through multiple rounds of debt ceiling brinkmanship in the Obama years that led to some super painful de uh, deficit cuts that led to us losing some things that we really should not have lost. Um, and that led to constant headlines about gridlock that did not rebound in our favor at all. So the idea that this is going to be a politically advantageous fight to have when you have a genuinely wackadoodle caucus who may well tip the global economy into chaos just for the hell of it. Um, I think that's an enormously irresponsible position to take. I would agree with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When they don't, when they don't care about people or outcomes of some of these decisions for them, the chaos can be the point. Then why wouldn't you want to take that leverage point away from them when you have the power to Right. Well, and we have we have plenty of evidence that Republicans are totally open to wrecking the economy when they think it's going to be to their political advantage. So why are we giving them the power to do that? Exactly. OK, so 
then that being said, what is the best way for us to make an impact for the activists and folks who are listening? What actions are you all recommending? Is there a website they can go to to get the talking points or tell us um, what they should do? (laughs) We love we love to go right to action there. Um, So the biggest thing, particularly what we have, we have an action for everyone right now. If you've got a Republican, we're trying to we've got a bunch of things that we are really trying to get to 60 votes. That means some significant Republican support. right? Right. So Electoral Count Act, we're looking at different versions of a DACA compromise on uh, action for DREAMers um, that would require Republican support to get across the finish line. Um, So we have call scripts specifically on if you live in a red state, here are some things to press your Republican senators on. If you live in a blue state or a place where you've got blue senators, We've got a lot. We got a lot of work to do to get everybody to the shared strategic analysis about taking these hostages off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I would say, and and going back to your earlier question about like what's the best line of attack here, you know, fundamentally, very few people uh, are really immersed in the minutia of parliamentary procedure or understanding exactly what the debt ceiling is. But a lot of people care about Social Security and Medicare. And so fundamentally, we need to have this conversation as being about what is necessary to protect Social Security and Medicare from an attack on it next year that will be uh, it'll be structured through this this vehicle. But fundamentally, it's going to be it doesn't it's not going to matter that much if you're the one whose check is getting cut. So if you go to Indivisible's website, you've got uh, the front page a whole set of ways that you can take action on the final session. So that's indivisible.org. Check us out and you will find the immediate action items that you are most relevant for you for letting your representatives know what action you need to see happen. Great. Indivisible.org. I know our listeners have it bookmarked, but we'll have it on our show notes page for (laughs) easy access as well. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You you mentioned, I want to take us back to the Senate because you you mentioned that again. And Chuck Schumer, um, uh, said that he felt there was, uh, you know, a, a few non-MAGA Republicans who he could work with. And, you know, he uh, he can say that rightly because they were able to pass some bipartisan legislation uh, in the last term. So in this fight, kind of the mad dash to get this stuff through the Senate, how are, how are you feeling? Are, are you... Um, do you see those senators that that could help us help us out? That's a that's a generous term. But do you see see senators that would sign on to some of this bipartisan legislation? I think if you look at the last two years of legislative strategy, what you see is that Mitch McConnell tried to strategically release people at key moments in order to make progress on a small number of legislative compromises in the hope that doing so would mollify Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and prevent them from moving forward on more ambitious party line votes or on getting rid of the filibuster such that we could advance the host of democratic agenda items. Hmm. So I think that we have to look at the situations over the last two years where Republicans have thrown in, right? Infrastructure, uh, the gun bill, uh, a couple of other places. We have to look at those as places where they made an assessment that their own political uh, advantages were served by a temporary appearance of cooperation that would forestall bigger unilateral action. And part of the Republican massive temper tantrum around uh, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act was that they kind of thought they had this implicit deal with Joe Manchin, which was they would give him some things on stuff he cared about every once in a while. And in return, he wouldn't throw in on any kind of massive party line bill. 
Um, and it turned out that he actually was prepared to do both. And uh, that caused, you know, Mitch McConnell and a lot of the uh, Republican leadership to absolutely flip out. So I don't think that we should be giving anybody here any credit for an actual commitment to bipartisanship and actual commitment to getting things done. I think that a lot of times what they're doing is acting on a calculation that this is going to advantage them in a meaningful way if they could take issues that are toxic to them off the table or if they can prevent or forestall greater unilateral action by Democrats. But hey, where that works in our favor, right? With stuff <laughs> like the Marriage Equality Act, we should absolutely move forward. <laughs> right. Yeah. That makes sense. Separating that out a little bit makes sense. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to what we were talking about Georgia, which is, of course, symbolic. And then finally the end of this 2022 cycle, which I'm sure you can agree, feels like an eternity, <laughs> a little bit of an eternity of a cycle for those of us who've been working um, in the lead up to it. And so I wanted to give you a chance to also reflect on kind of what you're most proud of, you know, what you're most proud of from the work you've done with Indivisible, which of course was also electoral in addition to all the legislative work that you were doing. Uh, I would say when I think about this cycle, I think about how it has been a hard slog at times, right? Yeah. Nobody would say that actually governing is an easy emotional position to be in. There have been some disappointments. Yeah. We spent a lot of this year facing both really, really tough losses, stuff like the Dobbs decision, mm -hmm. and also looking at an incredibly foreboding election climate. And so, you know, the fundamental thing that I am proud of about our movement underneath all of that was keeping the faith and doing the work, even in the moments when, you know, the smart political pundits with all the numbers were telling us that all hope was lost. I think yeah. we had a really wonderful collaboration across the entire progressive movement. Um, Jen, obviously, as, as one of the leaders of this, I have to shout you out um, in the work around Protect Our Freedoms, where we were all kind of getting on board and collect, advancing a collective set of messages that centered freedom, that centered people's concerns about the Republican uh, MAGA agenda, about abortion, about democracy. Yeah. I think we did... You know, we we did the work of getting out that volunteer infrastructure that has been built and tested over the last two cycles all over the country. All of that stuff fundamentally was, you know, about folks who really got activated at one point because the system had failed them and Donald Trump had been elected and stayed activated because what they found was locally they had the power to actually make a difference and we saw it work once again this cycle. So fundamentally for me, it's about being part of that long-term movement of how do we keep the faith even in the hard times and how do yeah. we show people that there is something better in this country that we can tap into and win. That's so powerful. Um, thank you for that. I mean, it, I, I just hope, and I, I know that our listeners do, but I hope that everyone really looks at how close this election was uh, and appreciates the impact that they had on it, that anyone can have, like how important those phone calls and those door knocks are. It, it really made the difference in all of these elections. And, and it should be inspiring for people to know that they have power. They have agency to make change. They just choose to step up and volunteer and, and the tools are there for them. Absolutely. Having having said that, you kind of touched on it anyway, but let's end with the last question that we always wrap up with. What is giving you the most hope right now? Oh, goodness. Um, I would say uh, there, there are a lot of like fascinating sub stories of the 2022 election. But I think the thing that is the most 
hardening is the almost uniform rejection in swing states of election deniers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our fears around what was potentially going to shape the political environment for the next two years was the very, very high probability that in a tough year for Democrats, you would see a lot of very painful losses at the state level among people who control uh, the administration of elections, control the certification of elections, people who determine essentially whether or not we have free or fair elections, and concern that, you know, the relatively technical questions there would not resonate enough with voters to stop that from happening. And so I think it's a credit to voters. And I think it's a credit to everybody who did the work to create the environment in which voters cared about this, that we saw just uniform rejections in these key states that are responsible for, or that are going to make the difference in 2024 of the kind of people who ran on open platforms to overturn elections. The win for democracy. Same, same sees. Yeah, that is such a huge, huge relief, and um, and really gives me hope because we uh, for the same reasons. But also, I I think in 2016, like the class of 2016, I consider myself class of 2016. So many mm-hmm. people didn't understand how important local legislatures were, and that's Republicans have exploited that and and built their power for decades. And it really feels like we have a shift. Also in the national, you know, narrative, you know, that our, our ecosystem, people are really clued into how important that is. And it was reflected in the results of this last election. So, yeah, like I said, it's I could have really just said same. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, it's really when you reflect on it, it really is a huge win, given all the headwinds that we were facing. It's not over, right? There's more to do, but um, we staved it off and we should celebrate that. So congrats to you. And everyone on your team and in your movement, in the movement, in the broader movement. (laughs) Congratulations to all Mm -hmm. of us. Thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or tweet to us at howwewinpod at Blues Boy Steve and at Jen Ancona. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show with your friends and family. There's always work to do, so we will be back with some more next Wednesday. And be careful out there. It's a full moon and Herschel Walker's on the loose. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God.